And I want you to imagine yourself standing before the Lord on the last day, the day of judgment. And I want you to think to yourself about what thoughts and what emotions begin to stir in you whenever someone reminds you about the fact that there's coming a day when everyone is going to stand before the Lord. When you think about that day, do you feel confident and hopeful? Do you think immediately of all that God the Father has planned for you, all that God the Son has accomplished for you so that you could face that day without fear? Or do you feel a sense of dread and uncertainty? Do you fear what will happen on that day? That perhaps some accusation will be brought against you that will disqualify you from entering the kingdom of God? That's an important question to ask because it's hard enough to follow Jesus faithfully when we are confident of His love and assured of His salvation. But it is extremely difficult to follow Jesus, especially in hardship and suffering if you're not sure what's going to happen on the last day. If you're not sure that all that you endured and suffered and sacrificed will be worth it. So enter Romans 8, 33 and 34. This text is for every believer who hears the voice of the accuser telling them that their sins will disqualify them in the end. This text is for every believer who wonders if God is really for them and if Jesus is truly on their side. This text is for every believer who is reluctant to follow Christ when it's hard, when it costs them something, because they're not 100% sure it's going to be worth it in the end. This text is for every believer who is afraid that to stand before the Lord on the last day might mean condemnation rather than vindication. So here's what Paul says, verses 34, excuse me, 33 and 34. He says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Now, Paul here, uh, actually beginning in verse 31, has hit the climax, the crescendo of the argument that he has been building all through this letter to the Romans. From the beginning, from chapter 1, Paul has been unfolding for us not only our need for the gospel, but also the uh, manifold reality of the gospel. All that Jesus has accomplished for us, all that the Father has planned for us, all that the Spirit has done in us. And particularly here toward the end of chapter 8, he has reminded us that God has called us, that he has predestined us, he has purposed for us that He will make us like Christ. He foreknew us. He loved us. He has justified us. And He will 
glorify us. And what Paul is doing now is he is taking all those glorious truths and he is saying to us, now here's what this means for you. Here's what this means as you face suffering. Here's what this means as you face persecution. Here's what this means as you face your own mortality and death. Here's what this means as you face all the challenges of living this life in a fallen world. Here's what this gospel is meant to do for you. And one of the things that he says here in verse 33 is it's, it's meant to help us face the day of the Lord, the day of judgment Without fear, because no one can change God's verdict for you. Notice he says there in verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now just like earlier in verse 31 when he said, If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't mean... That there's not anybody against us. What he meant was, because God is for us, no one can successfully oppose us. In the same way here, when he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He doesn't mean nobody will try to bring a charge against God's elect. He means nobody is going to be able to bring a charge that will stick. Now, before we can grasp what this verse is meant to do for us, we need to make sure we understand who this verse is for. Notice he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, who is that? Who are God's elect? Well, when he refers to God's elect, he's talking about the same people he was talking about in verse 28 when he spoke of those who were called according to God's purpose. The same people he spoke about in verse 29 when he spoke of those whom God foreknew. The same people in verse 29 he spoke of when he said the people he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He mentioned those things again in verse 30. It's the same group of people. These words foreknew, predestined, called, elect. They're all different ways of referring to the same group of people. They're God's people. They're the people who believe. They're the people whom God loves. They're the people whom God has saved. They're the people whom God has called to be His own. When He speaks of those He foreknew, the emphasis is on the fact that God had set His love on them, determined to bring them into fellowship with them, Long before they were born, when he says that they are predestined, he's, the, the angle then is on the fact that God has determined ahead of time what he's going to do for them. That he is going to conform them to the image of his perfect son. When he uses the word elect, the emphasis is on the fact that God has chosen these people. He has elected them. He wants them. He has determined that they would be his. And this is a good word. It's a word that Paul uses. It's a word that John uses. It's a word that Peter uses. It's a word that Jesus uses. It's just one of the words the Bible uses to emphasize that God's people were meant to be God's people by God before they ever thought about God or turned to God or loved God. Just like John says in 1 John, we love Him because He first loved us. The emphasis is on the fact that God started our salvation. Our salvation was God's idea, not our idea. It was His initiative, not our initiative. And that's meant to strengthen us and comfort us. 
Right? Because if my salvation hung mainly on me and my initiative and my plan, I'd be extremely nervous about the outcome. But knowing that God had a plan for me and for you long before I had any good plans for me is comforting, is assuring. Right? So Paul refers to us as God's elect. This is another way of saying God's people. Right? And he says, who is going to bring any charge against God's elect, against God's people, against those whom God has set his love upon? Who will bring any charge against us? Well, we know who wants to bring a charge against us. The Bible is very clear that we have an adversary. In fact, the name Satan means adversary. And the Bible tells us that Satan is an accuser. He loves to bring charges against us. Romans, or it's not Romans, um, Revelation 12, 9 and 10 says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So what Satan loves to do is remind God about your sin and my sin. Satan loves to say to God, did you see what he did? Don't you remember what he did? Remember when Satan appeared before God in the book of Job? What did he say about Job? Yeah, of course Job trusts you right now. Everything in his life is good, but if you make his life hard, he's going to turn around and curse you just like that. He doesn't really love you. He just loves the stuff you give him. That's the kind of thing that Satan loves to say about us. He loves to accuse us. And the fact of the matter is, we've all got things he could accuse us about. The Bible is very clear. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He doesn't have to make stuff up about us. There's true stuff that we've done that makes us guilty before God. But the good news is that's not the whole story. Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And that word justifies carries some heavy weight. And Paul unpacked it for us in Romans chapter 4 and Romans chapter 5. What that word justifies means is that God has declared that you are just. That you are righteous. If you have trusted Christ, if you are in Christ, then your sin has been forgiven and you have been declared righteous by God. The way uh, Romans 4 5 says it is that God justifies the ungodly. He doesn't say, oh no, 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 Satan, you've got this one wrong. He's actually a really good guy. That's not what justification means. Justification means God looks at us and says, I know he's ungodly. I I know she has sinned. But I say she is righteous. He is righteous. He is forgiven. She is not guilty. And Paul made very clear the reason God can say that is because Jesus took our sin on the cross in our place 
bore the punishment for our sin in full so that God can justly say, that one is righteous. Because Jesus has paid the full penalty for our sin and we have received Jesus' righteousness to cover us so that we stand before God righteous in His sight with the righteousness of Christ. So Paul says, you need to remember... Yes, Satan is going to try to accuse you. He's going to remind you of your sin. He's going to remind God of your sin. He's going to try to accuse you and bring condemnation upon you. But what you need to remember is the one who is more powerful than Satan. God, the creator of all. He has said, not guilty about you. He has said, that one is righteous. And nothing Satan can say can overturn that verdict. There's nothing Satan can say about you that God will say, oh, you know, I hadn't thought about that. Oh, I I missed that. I didn't know that happened. I didn't know he had done that. I didn't know she had failed me in that way. God knew it all. Knew all your sin before he sent Jesus and he's still sinning. He knew all your sin when you cried out for mercy and He still said, I forgive you. So nothing Satan can say can undo what God has done. Nothing that Satan charges you with can overturn the verdict that God has already pronounced in your favor. If that's true, and it is, then that ought to give us great confidence as we prepare for the day when we will stand before the Lord, to know that He has already said, this one's mine. He has already said, this one's forgiven. I know all about everything that they've done. But I love them anyway, and I sent my son anyway, and I declared them righteous and forgiven anyway, and nothing you can say can change that. So that's verse 33. Now verse 34. Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us even more encouragement to strengthen our confidence and our assurance. He says in verse 34, okay, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So no one can bring any charge against us that's going to stick, Paul says. And then he says, what about... Condemnation. Is there any chance that the people whom God has chosen, whom He has loved, whom He has called, whom He has justified, whom He has promised, He will glorify, is there any chance that they will in the end be condemned? Well, who gets to pronounce that verdict? Who gets to say condemned or vindicated, punished or Received. Who gets it? Jesus does. The Bible is very clear. 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. That's Jesus' job. He has been given all authority and all judgment has been given to the Son, Jesus says in John 5. Peter says it again in Acts 10, verse 42. He says, And He, Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So Jesus is the one who has been given the authority to judge. And that is why Paul says, Okay, who's going to condemn 
He just said at the beginning of this chapter in Romans 8.1 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, how do we know that? Who, who is going to condemn us? Well, Christ is the judge. And guess what Christ has done? Christ has died for the very sins that Satan seeks to remind God about. Jesus himself, who is the judge, is also the one who laid down his life for you. Jesus, the one whom Satan will seek to remind of all your failures, all your sins, all your rebellions. Jesus is the one who can say, I know all about those. In fact, I know more about them than you do. I bore their weight. I bore their punishment. I took all that for him because I wanted to. It wasn't mine to bear. I had never sinned. But I took the weight of that sin on my own shoulders. And I died in her place to deal with that sin. To bring an end to that sin. Romans 5, 6, and 8 says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. He goes on to say, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul says, who's going to condemn us? The one who has the authority to condemn us is the one who died for us. And not only who died for us, he says more than that, who was raised. Remember Romans 4.25 says, not, not only that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, but it also says He was raised for our justification. His resurrection is our vindication. His resurrection says to everyone who's listening, the price that was paid for their sin was paid in full. And so Jesus no longer has to stay dead. He is now alive, never to die again, sealing once and for all the eternal salvation He has secured for His people. The only one who could possibly condemn us died for us, rose for us. And where is he right now? He's at the right hand of God. He is seated in the place of highest authority. We read earlier in Ephesians chapter 1 about what God did, not only when he raised Christ uh, from the dead, but also when he seated him in the heavenly places. And what Paul said there was, he says... um, that some of the great power, the great might that God worked, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus, who died for us, who was raised for us, is seated in heaven above all earthly and heavenly authority, above every rule, above every powerful name that you could possibly name, there is no one and nothing that is not subject to Him. No one can compel Him to act in any way He doesn't want to. No one can force Him to deliver a verdict other than the one He has already determined to deliver. He has all authority and everyone and everything is subject to Him. And what's He doing while He is seated there at God's right hand? Paul says, He indeed 
is interceding for us. There He is in the highest place, seated on His heavenly throne, ruling over everything. And what's He doing? He's praying for you. He is interceding for you. He is ministering on your behalf. So here's what a famous preacher from the days of the early church said in light of all these things that John said, he, he, he brings it all, or that Paul has said, he brings it together so well. He says, if then the Spirit even intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and Christ died and intercedes for us, and the Father spared not His own Son for you, and elected you, and justified you, why be afraid anymore? Or why tremble when enjoying such great love and having such great interest taken in you? We have no reason to fear the day of judgment because God is for us and Christ is interceding for us. And if we have no reason to fear the day of judgment, then that means we can face the trials of life and even the reality of death with courage and confidence, knowing that when we stand before the Lord, we will not face an angry judge, but God our Father and Christ our elder brother. We will stand before the One who gave His Son for us. We will stand before the One who has already pronounced us justified. We will stand before the One who gave His life for us, who was raised for us, who though He is seated in the highest place, intercedes for us. We will not appear in the courtroom of the Lord as guilty criminals awaiting our sentence, though that is what we deserve. Instead, we will appear in the courtroom of the Lord as adopted sons, loved and welcomed home. For that, we praise God. Let's pray.